You know, when I was 11 years old, I convinced my parents to allow me to play Little League Baseball. While I was growing up, I played with kids in our neighborhood, and, uh, but I never played in any kind of a, an organized league before. The kids in my neighborhood were good ball players, and I thought I was pretty good too. So I was excited to have the opportunity to compete at that kind of a level. I remember on draft day, that was the day where all the players were asked to uh, throw and catch and hit in front of the team managers. I remember how nervous I was about what team I might get selected to play for. There was one great team that was sponsored by our local sporting goods store called The Sport Shop. And these guys were like over the top. They seemed to win every single year. But there was another team that was sponsored by the St. Clair County Road Commission that was the laughing stock of the league. They hadn't won a single game in the previous year. And of course, I was praying that I wouldn't get drafted by them. Well, I got a call later on that afternoon, and it was from Mr. Kennedy, who just happened to be the manager of none other than the St. Clair County Road Commission team. I wanted to cry. I'm thinking to myself, I finally get to play organized baseball, and I'm stuck on the worst team of the, on the planet. Well, I show up for our first practice, and one of the assistant coaches, Mr. Fields, says to me, you're going to be our catcher. And I said, but Mr. Fields, I've never caught in my life. He said, you will, starting today. At the end of practice, they handed out our uniforms, and they were old, and they were worn, and they were stained, and they had been stitched a thousand times. And as you would guess, the other teams, especially the sports shop, had brand new updated uniforms. It was sad. So I'm looking around at my teammates, and I'm thinking to myself, so this is what a losing team looks like. Well, we practiced for several weeks, and they continually ran us through a series of drills. Um, they also taught us some very important fundamentals about baseball, and, and at nauseum, we went over and over and over and over these things at every practice. And I watched me and my teammates start to become a team. We started to have some fun. We even started to believe that maybe somehow we could win. Well, the season started and we played our first game and lo and behold, we won. It was a real boost for us. And then we won our second game and I could see our confidence building. In game three, we faced the sports shop. And we beat those guys. And it was during that game that something triggered inside of us. Our team got into the zone. Do you know what that is? The zone is a place where you can't seem to do anything wrong. You are fundamentally strong and you are laser beam focused at what you're doing. You're disciplined and because of all of that, your productivity literally goes off the charts. It's what happens to a hockey player when he scores a hat trick while at the same time being superb defensively. It happens to a basketball player when he has a hot hand. It doesn't matter what part of the court he's on. He cannot miss a shot. It happens to a running back when he rushes over 100 yards against a team with a great defense. So my Little League teammates and I found ourselves in this zone. We were fundamentally sound in every area of the game, and the result was it seemed like we just couldn't lose. 
In fact, we ended up winning the league championship both years that I played on that team, the St. Clair County Road Commission team, nasty uniforms and all. Now, the reason that I remember our team being in the zone is because it doesn't happen very often. It's more the exception than the rule. And when it happens, it usually only lasts for a short period of time, not two entire seasons like it did with my teammates. But when it does happen, it's a wonderful journey and it's full of great memories. So what about you? Have you ever been in the zone? Whether in sports or whether in your profession or any other aspect of your life, have there ever been a time where everything just seemed to click? I bring this up because when it comes to the Christian life, there is a zone, so to speak, that we all can live in. It's a zone that makes it easier for us to live our lives in a way that honors Jesus Christ. And as you'll see in a moment, Jesus refers to it in our text for this morning when he says, remain in me as I also remain in you. Another Bible translation says, abide in me and I will abide in you. This mutual abiding, this in the zone living is what we're gonna focus on today. So in preparation, I'd like you to turn to John chapter 15. While you're doing that, as always, let me provide you with the setting. Jesus and his disciples just finished their Passover meal. In fact, you may remember the final verse of last week's scripture reference in John 14, 31. Jesus said to his disciples, come, let us leave. That was the last scripture we read. And that's exactly what they did. They exited the upper room and they, they walked through the city of Jerusalem, heading for the Kidron Valley and the Garden of Gethsemane. And as they did, no doubt they passed the door that led into the holy place in Herod's temple. This is a door that would have stood out greatly because it was decorated with an impressive sculpture of giant golden vines that wrapped all around that door frame. This vine was to remind the worshipers of Israel what the Old Testament had repeatedly said about them, that they were God's vine, that they were God's vineyard. I want you to listen to how Kalmut's dictionary describes this special vine-covered door. In the temple of Jerusalem, above and round the gate, 70 cubits high, which led from the porch to the holy place, a richly carved vine was extended as a border and decoration. The branches, tendrils, and leaves were of finest gold. The stalks of the bunches were of the length of the human form, and the bunches hanging upon them were costly jewels. Herod first placed it there. Rich and patriotic Jews from time to time added to its embellishment. One contributed a new grape, another a leaf, and a third, even a bunch of the same precious materials. This vine must have had an uncommon importance and a sacred meaning in the eyes of the Jews. With that majestic splendor, must it likewise have appeared in the evening? Excuse me, with what majestic splendor must it likewise have appeared in the evening when it was illuminated by tapers? Well, I believe at the exact moment that Jesus and his disciples passed this famous vine is when he stopped and gave his final I am statements. As he stood in front of that, that grand vine sculpture, 
Jesus said in John 15, 1, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. And I'm sure at that exact moment, all conversations must have ceased upon hearing this powerful statement because the force of his words, of Jesus' words, essentially was saying this. You all now know how Israel is pictured as a vine that is meant to produce refreshing fruit for a lost world. Well, let it be known, people, I am the fulfillment of all that that suggests. So with this in mind, let's follow along as we read John 15, 1 through 17. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along. It'll be up on the screen behind me. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Now, before we go any further, I want to talk a few minutes and explain exactly what it means to abide in Christ. What is this living in the zone that I've been talking about? What is it all about? Well, in my mind, where you abide is where you stay. To use a more contemporary slang, abiding is where you hang. So growing Christians consistently hang with or abide with Jesus. Abiding is learning to remain in the zone or in the presence of Jesus throughout your day. Now, of course, if you're a Christian, you are always in the presence of Jesus because as we talked about last week, through the power of his indwelling spirit, Jesus is within us always. The problem is that sometimes we forget to acknowledge his presence. Too often we begin our days in a mad rush running around at, at breakneck speed, moving throughout our day from one crisis to the next. 
and it drains us of peace, and it drains us of joy. And at the end of our day, we collapse in exhaustion. Well, in this text, Jesus is telling us that we do not have to live that way. We don't have to face the crises of life in our own strength. We don't have to solve the difficult dilemmas of our life on our, with our own brain power. We don't have to go through stressful days alone and by ourselves. We can go through every day in the zone by acknowledging Christ's presence and asking him for his guidance and power. I recently read that Celtic Christianity has experienced a resurgence of popularity in recent years. And one of the reasons it pointed out was this, their lifestyle, which in many ways is like our lifestyle, they were busy people and yet they learned to incorporate Christ into every moment of their everyday lives. Since Celtic communities were primarily agriculture, everyone, and I mean everyone, dads, moms, and children, they worked from sunrise to sunset. They didn't have a whole lot of free time. They faced the challenges of harsh weather. They endured the, uh, being stressed living in an area uh, uh, that was pretty much non-Christian society at all. They lived with the risk of being invaded by the Romans and by the Vikings and by, by the Irish. I mean, life was hard for these people. Even so, when you look at the writings of that era, it reveals that this is a group of individuals who had discovered the joy of abiding in Christ. They incorporated their Christian faith into everything that they did. Daily activities became a ceremonies of celebration of the presence of God. For example, they made their early morning face washing into a religious ceremony. Their writings tell us that every morning they would splash their face with water and three, time, three times and pray this prayer. The palmful of the God of life, the palmful of the Christ of love, the palmful of the spirit of peace, the Trinity of grace. They, as they got their children dressed, their children would say, even as I clothe my body with wool, cover thou my soul with the shadow of thy wings. Just like us, their lives were hectic. Their lives were, were very chaotic. And they didn't have time for long prayers. But throughout the day, each event, each activity, each chore became an opportunity to pray. As they kindled the fire, as they made their bed, as they cooked bread, as they scattered seed, everything was offered in the name of God. And this is part of what Jesus is talking about here. Abiding, on, abiding in him, acknowledging his presence in every moment of everyday life, through prayer, through private worship, through thinking of him and about him. And I want you to think about that for a moment. Imagine how different your and my life might come to be if we included Jesus in every activity of the day. At that point, every activity would become sacred. Listen, I don't think there is anything spiritual about washing your face or, or, or driving to work or making the bed or turning on a computer or crunching numbers or waiting on customers. But if each of these things, they can become a, a, a sacred event if in fact we perform them in the presence of Christ, knowing that he is there with us watching every step we take. 
There's a story of a 12-year-old boy named Billy who lived in Wales just prior to the start of World War I. And Billy was offered his first job in the coal mines. And on his first day, he found himself deep in the bellows of that mine, and he's very proud of his first step toward manhood. Billy's task that day was to work alone in a shaft far away from the other coal miners. His job was to shovel muddy coal dust into what they call a dram or, or a coal cart. And as a prank, his supervisor leaves him with an oil lamp, and it's the only light that he has down there, but it only has an hour's worth of oil in it. Well, when the oil lamp ran out, the area that Billy was working in plunged into complete and total darkness. And he had no idea how to get out, and he becomes afraid. But he remembers something that his mother said to him on his, before he left for work that morning. She said, Billy, remember Jesus is with you always, even down in the depths of that coal mine. So from then on, Jesus acknowledged the presence of God. He prayed as, to Jesus as he learned how to continue on in his work. And what he did is he counted the steps from the coal mud that he had been shoveling to the dram where he was dumping it. He sang hymns and he talked to Jesus and he continued to work in the darkness as he did before his fear started and he replaced that fear with a sense of inner peace. He worked all day with vision no better than that of a blind man. He got a lot done and he experienced a lot of joy in doing so because he was in the zone. He was abiding with Christ. At the end of his shift, his prankster boss supervisor came to pick him up and asked Billy if he was afraid after having been left alone most of the day in darkness. And Billy responded this way, I wasn't alone. Jesus was with me. From then on, his coworkers gave him the name Billy with Jesus. What a compliment that would be, huh? For any of us. But that's what abiding in Jesus means. Our Lord is saying, include me in the minute details of your day. And I will fill your life with my peace. I will fill your life with my power and my joy. This is an important principle that we as modern day followers of Jesus need to grasp because living in the zone of Jesus' presence is the key to a meaningful and a productive Christian life. Think of it this way. The key to a good marriage is communication. Well, it's no different in your Christian walk. Do you wanna have a dynamic spiritual life? Then spend time alone, communicating with Jesus. Talk to him. Learn to listen to him sometimes more than you talk. Do it all the time. Do it as much as possible. Pray without ceasing. By the way, the Journal of Psychological Science published a study with some facts in it that we as Christians already know, but might be breaking news for the rest of the world. Their study showed that when people think about God, their brains respond differently. And they do so in a way that enables them to get through setbacks and to overcome mistakes. And this study is just further proof of the fact that when we enter into the zone of Christian living, our lives are more effective and more efficient than ever before. 
As I, as I have said, that's what I want to dwell on today because in our text, Jesus mentions several ways in which we can benefit from this in the zone kind of living. Here's number one. Our lives become more productive. Look at verse five. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Jesus is saying that if we learn to abide in him, our lives become fuller, more abundant, and more productive. We begin to experience the fruit that only comes when we tap into the power of an ongoing relationship with the Spirit of God. And when we do this, we operate more in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Those fruit of the Spirit and our life begins to blossom. For example, our careers, our jobs become more productive. We become known as the best employees, the ones who consistently do the best work. And by the way, that should be your goal as a follower of Christ, to be the best worker at your place of employment. It does not go unnoticed, I can assure you. You giant fans aren't gonna like this, but when Oral Hershiser pitched for the Los Angeles Dodgers through the 1988 World Series, the camera kept focusing on him in the dugout. It was the most important game of his life, and yet he appeared to be completely relaxed as he sat on the bench. His head leaned way back, and his eyes were closed. No one realized it at the time, but later he explained that he was praying and he was singing hymns. In fact, on The Tonight Show, he told Johnny Carson that praying in the dugout helped him to stay focused during the game. Forget for a minute that he was a sports celebrity playing in front of millions of people, making millions of dollars. In reality, Oral Hershiser was an employee working for a business and getting paid to do a job. While he was at work, he chose to remain in the presence of God, and as a result, he was better at his job. No matter what your career is, Jesus will help you to be more productive as well. Employees who acknowledge Jesus' nearness, they get more done, and they do it better than anybody else. This is because when we abide in Christ Jesus, we put ourselves in a position for God to bless the work that we do. And you know something else? Abiding in Christ will make us better parents, it will make us better spouses, and it will make us better friends. In fact, Jesus says you can't be the kind of person that he has called you to be, the kind of person that you are really longing to be without abiding in him. Look at verse four, four and five again, where he says, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must re remain in the vine, Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, not abiding or refusing to invite Jesus into our days, our jobs, our marriages, our friendships is why so many people are unproductive. It's why we're weak. It's why we fail in so many areas. I'm reminded of several years ago when Chevron Oil Company uh, entered the, a float in the Tournament of Roses Parade. It was a beautiful float, but it came to a grinding halt 
and it stopped every float behind them and every marching band behind them. The problem was that though they built a beautiful float, the people who built it did not rely on Chevron's vast resources. They ran out of gas. <laughs> the entire parade came to a stop, as I said, until somebody went and got a gallon of gas. And the, the parade went on. How embarrassing. Well, many of us are like that. We run out of gas. We run out of spiritual gas. Oh, we look good on the outside. Clean up really nice. But inside, we're empty. And that happens because we fail to acknowledge Christ's presence and power within our daily life. We try to live a Christ-like existence in our own resources. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is always a recipe for failure. Plus, we don't bear the fruit of the Spirit. And then people don't even recognize us as Christ followers when we're not bearing any fruit. When we don't manifest love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control, again, the fruit of the Spirit, people don't believe or even recognize that we are followers of Christ. You see, your fruit shows. Your fruit proves where it is that you've been abiding. It indicates where you get your strength, where you get your wisdom, where you get your insight. I read that if you put a daffodil into colored water, it will turn the color of whatever water it's in. And this color change shows where it is deriving its nourishment from. Well, the same is true in the Christian life. When we bear fruit, when we produce Christ-like qualities, it shows everyone that we have been in Christ's presence. This is what Jesus was referring to in verse 8 when he said, This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So in order to experience the blessings of the Christian life, to be known for your love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, you and I, quite simply, need to abide in Jesus. You have to draw your strength, and yes, even your worldview, from the time that you spend with our Lord. This is how to have a truly abundant and productive life. But Jesus also reminds us that if we are to reach our fullest potential when it comes to fruit bearing, God is also going to prune us from time to time. Verse 2 says, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You see, Jesus says that he is the gardener. And when he said that, it shows us that he understands the concept of pruning in order to increase production. Take wine growers, for example. Sometimes they will wander among their vineyard and they will, they will pinch off a growing tip so it won't grow too rapidly. Sometimes they cut off a, a foot or more of new growth to prevent the loss of an entire shoot. Other times they will lift up a branch that's growing too close to the ground to prevent mold, to prevent it from growing properly. Thinning the grape clusters themselves enables the rest of the branch to bear more fruit. And not just bear more fruit, but bear a fruit that is of a higher quality. To the untrained eye, you and I would look at that and we would think, well, that is just wasteful. But to the experienced eye, it's the only way to grow healthy, delicious fruit. Well, the same thing is true in the Christian life. God has to prune us in order for us to grow. 
in order for us to produce more fruit for his kingdom. And our father's pruning process can be painful. You ever been there? All three of you, thank you. I'm glad you've experienced that before. The rest of you are not being truthful. Either that or you were sleeping. Wake up. It's painful, but it's beneficial. In Psalm 119, David talks about how before he was afflicted, he went astray, but how, it, how good it was that he was afflicted. In other words, he was pruned so that he might learn God's decrees. You see, sometimes the pain of pruning comes because of our sin. Over times, it's simply because we are bearing fruit, but God wants us to bear more. There are times that God allows us to go through hardships and trials so as to deepen our reliance upon him. In fact, God's pruning is always good for us. It's always just what we need. It always takes the sinful parts of our life and removes them so what is left is more like Jesus and he can use us in greater ways. When we allow him, God pulls us away from destructive relationships. He cuts away hurtful behavior and, and sinful qualities like gossip, and like lust and other things that are very rampant in our society. And in doing so, what he does is he sculpts us into the image of his son. I don't know how many of you saw the movie, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, but it was a cinematic adaptation of C.S. Lewis' writings. In this particular movie, there was a boy named Eustace Scrub who was a selfish, immature, spoiled brat. And as a part of his pruning, he gets turned into a dragon covered in scales. And in this trial, it, it, it greatly humbles Eustace, helps him to mature. In the end, Aslan, the Christ figure in these movies depicted as, as a lion, he uses his claw to cut off the dragon's skin. And what is left is a much more godly young man. The cutting away of the dragon's skin was painful, yes, but it was beneficial. And you can clearly see this in James 1, 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Remember that pruning is necessary to growth, and God loves you enough for this growth to happen within you. But one important thing you must never forget about the pruning process. God is never closer to you than at those times of pruning. So when it happens and you feel like, oh, this is painful, God's not there. He is closer to you at that moment than he is at any time, seeing you through that pruning process. Through that pruning, God is the perfecter, as the scriptures say, of our faith. Hebrews 12, five through seven. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as a disciple. God is treating you as his children for what children are not disciplined by their father. Listen, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful, but later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness, a harvest of peace. So abiding with Christ, including these times of pruning, 
makes our lives more productive. Here's the second benefit of this in the zone living. Our prayers are more powerful. Look at verse seven where Jesus says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Many people misunderstand this promise. They think Jesus was saying that the sky is the limit when it comes to our prayers. We can ask for anything and get it. And this immature mindset makes our conversations with God become nothing more than a series of gimmies. We say, give me this God, give me that God, and often the things we ask for are not at all the things that we really need. And this, this concept of prayer turns God into nothing more than a genie in the bottle. But of course, that was not Jesus' intent with what he said there. He, he was saying that our most meaningful prayers come from his words as we abide in him. It comes through our thought process. You see, when we abide in Christ, our desires all of a sudden start becoming what they should be. Let me put it this way. We talk like the people we hang around with. And furthermore, we become like the people we abide with. So if we don't abide with Christ, and instead we are doing all of our abiding in this world, we will pray like the world prays. We will pray selfishly. We will pray materialistically. When Christ is not the center of your and my life, we often want what we shouldn't want, and we don't want the things that we desperately need. When we're not abiding in Christ, we pray for the wrong things. But abiding in Christ causes us to experience change from within, from the inside. And our desires become completely overhauled. When we abide in Christ, we experience an empowered prayer life as we learn to pray more deeply for the right kind of things. And our prayers then blend with God's desires, his desires with our own. When his word abides inside you and, he, you and me, those same kinds of words naturally are going to come out in our prayers. So abiding in Christ helps us to grow up in such a way that we learn to live and pray rightly according to Jesus' words found in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. People who pray with power are people who live within the zone. They abide with Jesus day in and day out. Here's a final benefit of in the zone living. Deep relationships are possible. In verse 12 and following, Jesus focused on the kind of friendship that comes from abiding in him. He refers to that wonderful caliber of friendship that is only possible between branches of the same vine. He's talking here about friendships that are characterized by mutual sacrifice and love for the Lord. He's talking about friendships between believers who know the value of obeying Christ in all things. The fact is all people long for that caliber of a personal relationship. We hunger for true friends. So understand abiding in Christ is the secret to this. It's this abiding that, that will draw us together. It's what binds us together even as a church family. That's why we have such a sweet spirit in this church at High Point. You know, chemists use the term affinity 
to describe the attraction that causes atoms to bond together with other atoms. In friendship, affinity at its most basic level is an attraction between two people. You like the other person, but there's an affinity that, that's more than just liking that person. Affinity also refers to having common ground with them. I'm talking about surface level affinities. This is when we share the same interests or activities with another person. We like golf, they like golf. We like action movies, they like action movies. We like going to concerts, they like going to concerts. But the truth is that our lives are actually far too full of those surface level affinity relationships. They're not deep relationships at all. The Bible says that there is a more satisfying kind of relationship to be had where there are deeper kinds of affinity that are possible. This is what Proverbs 18.24 was getting at when it says, one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The writer here is contrasting the surface level relationship with closer friendships. And he is warning that quantity does not translate into quality. This is the reason that David and Jonathan were such good friends in the Bible. First Samuel 18, 11 says, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. In other words, they were close because they shared a deeply held love for God. And that was the basis for their friendship. You know, the term soul brother was something that we think originated in pop culture in the 60s when actually it was mentioned 2,000 years earlier. Author Gary Enrig writes this, the quality of a friendship is nearly always determined by the quality of that which unites us. This means that if our common bond is an, act, is an activity like a sport or a business venture, then surface level affinity will probably result. But if the common bond consists of deeply felt values, a much closer bonding can happen. That's this kind of bonding that, that people have together with friends in Christ experience day in and day out. Author Lee Strobel writes this, I've had all kinds of friendships in my life but by far the most fulfilling have been those in which our commonality was Christ. It's those in which we shared the substance of our souls. We had a joint allegiance to Jesus. We prayed together and gave each other godly counsel and encouragement, and our hearts beat in unison for kingdom activities. So the best place to find a friend is in a church full of people who are living in the zone. It's the best place to find a spouse as well, I might add, when we abide in Christ. I think we have a single man out there that gave me an amen, or somebody who just became a married man, and he, he agreed. One or the other, sorry, brother. When I saw who it was, I knew. I know I've covered a lot this morning, but in closing, I want to ask you a question. As a Christian, does this in-the-zone dwelling or in the zone living appeal to you? Does it yearn to, does it make you yearn for a more productive and a more abundant life? Do you wish your prayer life could, could be more powerful and more like a real conversation between you and God himself? Are you lonely for the blessings of, of kindred spirit kind of relationships? 
Well, if one or more of these questions appeal to you, then I would like to suggest to you that you make a commitment to start living within the zone from here on out. Begin every day by abiding in Christ. During your day and everything you do, acknowledge his presence in all things. Seek him for the decisions that you need to make. Talk to him when difficulties come. When you do, you will become more productive. Your prayer life will become more powerful. And I guarantee you that you will establish deeper relationships than surface level kind of relationships. Scott and the worship team, would you guys come forward? Help me to get ready to close this down. I cannot think of a better way to make a commitment, a new commitment for living in the zone or abiding in Jesus than to be reminded of what Christ has already done for you and I. Today, we are going to participate in Holy Communion together. And the purpose of this is to follow Jesus' command that we never forget, but that we should always remember the sacrifice that he made on the cross for you and I. You see, Jesus has already done his work. He made it possible for us to abide in him. We just need to start doing so. Through his blood, our sins are forgiven. Through his stripes, we have been healed. And through the indwelling Holy Spirit, we are empowered. This is what we celebrate during communion. God has given you and I a pathway to salvation and eternal life with him. I'd like to start by asking the ushers to come forward and we're gonna pass out the communion emblems. You know, communion will always be an ongoing part of our worship and our adoration of our Lord. And as I've said before, we cannot make this moment just some kind of a ritual. And I fear there's a lot of churches that do, it's just kind of a ritualistic thing. This has to become personal. We don't participate in the Lord's Supper together to check off our list of things we do because we're good Christian people. We do this to connect. We do this to reconnect with Christ as we are reminded of his goodness to us. It's a time when those who have received Jesus remember and rejoice and celebrate what Christ has done. And it's a time for those who don't know Jesus to have the opportunity to receive the salvation that you so desperately need. Because the Bible offers us instruction about doing this and it has a warning for anyone who might participate in communion in what it refers to as an unworthy manner. In 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29, it says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So this is a time when all of us, as the scriptures say, must examine ourselves. Are we, are we carrying unconfessed sin that we need to confess? Are we harboring unforgiveness towards someone else? Maybe even hatred towards someone else? Is our heart in alignment with the things that God wants to do or are we fighting him? Are we in rebellion against him of what he wants to accomplish in our life? Speaking of, of, of the fruit of the spirit being developed in us. Most importantly, are we saved? Have we received Jesus' gift of salvation? Now is the time to make things right. If you did not pray that, pray that prayer earlier 
in the service, when we ask Christ to come into our hearts, this is the time to do that. Before we share communion together, I'd like everyone in this place to bow your head. I wanna prepare our hearts as we enter into this most sacred moment. We're gonna spend some time abiding with Christ. We're going to reserve a moment of silence where all you're gonna hear is the keyboard playing softly behind me. It's a time for all of us to pray to the Lord in our own words, in our own way. Ask the Lord to forgive you of your sin, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. If, as I said, if you're harboring unforgiveness or hatred for another person, ask God to forgive you of that, and then you go and forgive the person that you're holding those feelings towards. Furthermore, I would ask God to reveal himself to you in a new, in a fresh, in a powerful way this morning. Let's take a moment of silent prayer to be with our Lord. Let's remove any obstacles that might be in our way that would cause us to participate in communion in a less than God-honoring way. Father, you have heard our words. You've read our heart. We thank you for the forgiveness of sin. We thank you for salvation through Christ Jesus and the promise of eternity in your presence. We thank you for this time when we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested, he took the bread and after he had given thanks, he broke the bread and he said, this, uh, this, is, this bread represents my body, which will soon be broken for you. And he said, every time you do this, I want you to remember me. And as you partake of this bread this morning, I want you to be reminded of the broken and the battered body of our Lord and Savior. His body was broken for you. And by his stripes, the scriptures tell us, you are healed, you may eat the bread. In the same way, after dinner, he took the cup. He said, this represents the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. So as you drink of this juice, I want you to be reminded of the precious blood of Jesus that was shed to wash away your and my sin and to make us whole. You may drink the juice. Would you stand to your feet and sing with us, please? I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my Savior on that cursed tree. His body bound and drenched in tears, they lay him down. In Joseph's tomb, the entrance sealed by heavy stones. The sire still and all alone. Let's praise his name. Oh, praise his name of the Lord. Praise is the name. 
Bow your heads with me. Let's close this service in prayer. Father, we thank you for this beautiful day. So much has happened here today, Lord. The babies, the message in tongues and interpretation from the Spirit of God. Communion, where we remembered Jesus' sacrifice. We wrapped a lot into an hour and a half. Father, I thank you for your presence. I thank you for your spirit. I thank you for your word. Thank you for your many blessings that come from serving you. God, I pray that my, this congregation would learn to abide in you every moment of every day. They would not abide in the things of this world, but they would abide in the things of your word through prayer, through the study of your word, through the blessings and power of your spirit. Father, help us to be bright lights in a dark world. Pray that as we go our separate ways today, your spirit would guide and direct our steps, the places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have, that those conversations would build up and not tear down. And the brightness of the love of Christ would shine so brightly that people would know that we are different and that is we are disciples of Christ. So open doors, Father, for us to share your goodness with others and let us not be afraid to walk through those doors when they open but with boldness and confidence, walk in because we're abiding in you and knowing that you will give us the words to speak. I thank you for this time together. I thank you for your many blessings. I pray until we gather together again, you will keep us safe from sicknesses and disease. Pray that you would keep us away from any accidents that might befall us, to anything that would prevent us from coming together again as a family and worshiping you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for this day and we thank you for your blessings. Thank you for the presence of your spirit, not just in us, but in this place today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.